we were created with a craving to create. Humanity just likes to make stuff. All you have to do is give some children uh, Play-Doh or Legos or building blocks or tinker toys, step back and watch, and after a few moments, they'll construct something, look to you for your approval. We like to make things. Even in our speech, we can make just about anything. We say that we make a living and we make a grade and we make a float for the homecoming parade. We make excuses, we make mistakes, we make a monthly mortgage payment. We make friends, we make deadlines, we make babies, we make music. There's just about nothing that we can't make. And yet our passage this morning reminds us that there is something we are forbidden to make. Today we continue our sermon series entitled First and Ten, A Study of the Ten Commandments. We find ourselves in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 20, I'll begin at verse 4, I'll conclude at verse 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. If the first commandment tells us who to worship, the second commandment tells us how to worship. In the first commandment, the Lord said, you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. So the sovereign savior of the universe demands an exclusive relationship with you. When you come to the second commandment, this sovereign savior tells you how you approach him. And the way you approach the Lord is that you give him your all. All attention, all affection, all allegiance. In our passage, the Lord says, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. An idol is an object of worship. It is a cheap imitation of the divine. Simply stated, it is someone or something that we are trusting to save us other than God. Here the Lord says, you shall not make for yourself an idol out of anything. If anything can become an idol, then it stands to reason that everything is idol-ready. Anything, something, everything in your life could be an idol. An idol is anything that you give more value, more worth to than it really deserves. So here in Exodus chapter 20, the Lord just simply says, do not make for yourself an idol out of anything. He gives the jurisdiction, and it's pretty much anywhere, from the heaven above to the earth beneath to the waters below. Don't make anything an idol, because everything could be an idol. Do not make for yourselves an idol out of anything. It's the prophet Isaiah who mocks idol making. In Isaiah chapter 44, he simply says, a man goes out and cuts down a cedar tree. He cuts it in two, and half of that block of wood he uses to 
build a fire to warm himself and prepare his dinner. The other half he fashions into an image or an idol and he bows down to it saying, you are my God, save me. And Isaiah the prophet speaks of the mockery of that, the insanity of that. To take something that you use in your own life and then to craft it into an idol of worship. It's to give anything, it's to give something, it's to potentially give everything more worth and value than it's due. What Isaiah is saying is that idols can't compare to the Lord. Idols are finite. God is infinite. An idol is mute, but God speaks. An idol is deaf, but God hears. An idol is blind, but God sees. An idol is ignorant, but God knows everything. An idol is weak, but God has all power. An idol is stationary, but God is all the play, every place, all the time. An idol is dead, but God is alive. There's really no comparison. When you compare who is worthy of all your attention, affection, and allegiance versus what you give to some of your attention, affection, and allegiance. When you give to something other than God, all of your heart's desire, all of your thoughts, all of your allegiance, all of your attention, all of your affection, what Isaiah is saying is that's a mockery of God Almighty. The spiritual song is exactly right. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. He's got the little tiny baby in his hands. He's got everything in his hands. And if it's true that God has everything in his hands, that must also include that he's got my problems and my predicaments in his hands. He's got my trouble and my trials in his hands. He's got my sickness and my suffering in his hands. He's got my COVID and my cancer in his hands. He's got my past and my future in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Isaiah the prophet's exactly right, that there is only one God. He is the sovereign savior of the universe. He spoke and the world came into existence. Not only does he create all things, but he sustains life for all things. And he redeems his, his, his people. That's you and that's me. Oh, God is worthy of not only center stage, but the only one on the stage. When it comes to your attention, your affection, and your allegiance. But no sooner had God etched these words into tablets of stone and the dust settled on Mount Sinai that God's people entered into idolatry. It didn't take very long at all. The nation of Israel thought their leader Moses was on that mountain for far too long. He has his head in the clouds, they concluded. They got the second in command, Aaron. They said, Aaron, you've got to craft for us a god. You've got to craft for us an idol that we can identify as that's the God who led us out of Egyptian captivity. Aaron said, well, I'll do the best I can. Give me your gold. He took the gold, he put it into a pot, melted together, and fashioned a golden calf. He set the golden calf in front of the people, and he said, this is the God that led us out of Egyptian captivity. This is the God who has sustained us all these years. This is the God who is leading us into the promised land. The Bible says that they worshiped that golden calf. They feasted. They rose up in revelry. 
when Moses came back down the mountain, he pulls Aaron aside, and I love what he says. He says, what did they make you do? What got into you? And I love Aaron's response. Aaron says, listen, it's really not my fault. I really have no blame here because they just needed a God. And I I asked them to bring me their gold. They brought gold earrings. I put them into the pot and out comes this calf. I don't know how it happened. It's really not my fault. And Moses says, right now, you are useless to me. You have no good, uh, you're not good to me at all right now. And Moses had to deal with that. Now you would think that Israel would have learned her lesson after the golden calf catastrophe. Oh, but in Numbers 21, we are told that as the Israelites made their way through the desert, that they began to complain against God and against his servant Moses. They said, Moses, you don't know where you're going. You have no GPS. Uh, you, You don't know. We're just going around in circles out here. You have no clue what's going on. We are starving. We are dying. At least when we were in Egypt, we had food to spare. And here we are out here, and we're starving to death. We are parched of thirst. We don't even think you know where you're going, and we really doubt that God knows what he's up to. And friends, i got to be honest with you. God never takes too kindly to when his people begin to badmouth him. He sent poisonous snakes in the camp. And whenever any Israelite was bit by the venomous snake, that Israelite was sure to die. Now, that is a national epidemic that has immediate consequences. I mean, those people were bit, snake-bitten, and they died. It didn't take very many people to die, very many funerals, for them to say, you know what, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe Moses is not as dense and dumb as we thought he was. Maybe God knows what he's doing. Moses, can you please go and ask God to forgive us? Moses said, I'll do what I can do. He went on the mountain, he prayed to the Lord. The Lord said, Moses, I want you to fashion for yourself a bronze serpent. I want you to set it high on a pole, put it in the middle of camp. Anybody who's been snake bitten, if they look up to that bronze serpent in faith, they will be healed. But anyone who refuses to look up in faith, that person surely will die. Now I know that for some of you, The only good snake is a dead snake. I get it. I understand. But in this story, this bronze serpent, it was a good snake. Because certainly Moses crafted it the way God told him to, put it on a pole, set it high in the middle of camp, and anybody who looked at that bronze serpent was healed. Now, this has salvific overtones to it. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 3 that as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. That anyone who looks to me by faith, even though they've been snake bitten by sin, anybody who has the poison of sin pulsating through their veins, if they look to me in faith, they will be healed. And so Jesus said, that's a good snake. And in our story, there were many people who were snake bitten. They were bound to die. But in faith, they looked up to the gift that God had given. And in faith, they looked upon that bronze serpent and they were healed. It came time to break camp. And somebody said, what are we going to do with that snake? And they said, well, it's it's benefited us. Uh, Why don't we take it with us until we go set up camp someplace else? And so those Israelites did what us Baptists do. They made a committee. 
They made a committee, an SOS committee, Save Our Snake. And this SOS committee was in charge of making sure that snake was properly taken care of. The bronze serpent was taken on off the pole. It was put into a proper container. It was hoisted and, and led to another part wherever they would land and set up shop again. And then wherever they set up shop, they would put that serpent on its pole and they would sit it there in the middle of the camp. And that serpent traveled with them for decades. When you come to the life of Hezekiah, one of the good kings of Judah, then when it comes to Hezekiah's reign, he comes to usher in revival. Whenever a king ushered in revival, he would always tear down the high places. Those uh, pagan idol uh, worship was destroyed and torn down. And in 1 Kings, we read that Hezekiah smashed that bronze serpent. Now, why did he do that? Oh, because the people had begun to worship the snake. They had begun to worship the bronze serpent. They took a gift from God and made it into a God. They took a good thing and made it into a God thing. Hezekiah comes in and he says, we've got to smash this because you're not looking to God. You're looking to the gift of God. And this is, this is damaging your worship. And so he took that idol and he smashed it. Now, you would think that Israel would learn its lesson of idolatry, but she didn't. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites were going up against the Philistines. And that was the big bully on the playground. And they went to battle, and Israel lost. And they lost big time. In fact, Israel's army lost 3,000 soldiers that day. When they got back together to lick their wounds and circle the wagons and say, listen, why, why did we get whipped uh, on the battlefield? Somebody said it's because we don't have that box. You know, the ark of God, we didn't have the box. If you get the box, we'll have victory. Because wherever the box is, that's where God is. And wherever the box is, God always gives victory. we got to get that box. You know where the box is? Somebody said, yeah, I know where the ark of God is. Go get the ark of God. So they got the ark of God. When it came back into camp, there was such an applause that the Philistines heard it in their camp and they concluded a God must have shown up in Israel. So the Philistines said, fight like men. Fight like men. Today, boys, we got to fight like men. I don't know what they were fighting like before, but on this day they said, we got to fight like some men. We got to fight like strong men to the very end. And on this day, the Philistines attacked Israel again. And this time, even though Israel had the box, they lost 30,000 soldiers. The first battle, they lost 4,000. The second battle, with the box, with the Ark of God, they lost 30,000 soldiers. And somebody concluded, do you know why we lost? Because we were more enamored with the ark of God instead of the God of the ark. We had taken a good thing and made it into a God thing. You know, anything can be an idol. Everything can be idol ready. Anything and everything, something in your life you can give it a little bit too much worth, too much value. It might not be a bad thing. It might be a good thing, but you can make a good thing into a God thing. Oh, I've heard of some churches where they almost idolize the building, the color of the carpet, the stained glass windows. I've been some places where it would appear as if 
that a particular room or a tradition or a custom or a worship style became an idol. Something that was given just a little bit too much value and a little bit too much worth. Not that it's bad in and of itself, but it was just idolized. It was a cheap imitation of the divine. It was something, it was anything, it could be everything that has the potential to be an idol. It was John Calvin who said the human imagination is an idol factory. The human imagination is an idol factory. We can create just about anything, just about everything. We can give it too much worth and too much value. When you come to the second commandment, what God is saying is this is how you approach me. You approach me by giving me your all, all attention, all affection, all adoration. I wonder this morning, do you have any idols? I bet that you don't have any shrines on the mantle. You probably don't uh, have anything there at the fireplace that you burn incense to. Junior probably doesn't uh, break out of the house at midnight to go rub Buddha's belly with his buddies. I mean, you probably don't have a literal shrine or a piece of wood or a well-crafted stone that you bow down to. You probably don't have a tangible, physical, literal idol. Oh, but I wonder, do you have idols nonetheless? Something that you give a little bit too much value. Something in your life that you elevate in its worth higher than what it's really due. I think that our idols may be more subtle, but they're equally suffocating. I think that our idols may be different, but they're equally dangerous. I don't know that in the American culture, if the devil will ever go back to a literal physical piece of wood or stone. Why? Because the invisible idols are working quite well. So there's no reason for him to go back to anything tangible and physical if the invisible is working well. Now, you don't need for me to itemize all the potential idols in your life. For starters, I can't. I mean, I told you earlier that it could be anything and it could be everything. I don't think you want a sermon that itemizes every possible idol. I just said it could be everything. That's a mighty long sermon. And you don't want a sermon that's that long. I don't want a sermon that's that long. It could be anything. It could be everything. But let me just suffice it to say that in the American culture, it would appear to me that there are some idols that are right there on the surface. For starters, we idolize self, don't we? And we pretty much do whatever we want to do. We want to be our own God. So we make decisions based on what we want. Some of us idolize pride. Oh, yes, pride goes before the fall. Uh, it was Paul who said to the Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Consider others better than yourselves. Now, why would Paul have to write that? Because the Philippians were selfish, proud individuals. 2,000 years have passed, not a whole lot's changed. Sometimes we bow the knee just to comfort. We just want to be comfortable. Most of our life is a pursuit of comfort. We want to be comfortable. What does that look like? Well, we want youthful vigor. 
We want limitless wealth. We want powerful affluence and influence. As long as we have those things, we will be comfortable and we'll do just about anything to pursue that comfort. After all, we say to ourselves, doesn't God want us to be happy? And I've told you before, God cares far more about your holiness than your happiness. God wants you to be holy, beloved, far sooner than he wants you to be happy. Yet we live our life saying, what will make me happy? What will make me comfortable? Oh, yes, we can talk about money. We can talk about leisure. We can talk about sports. We can talk about a host of things that all fall under that category of comfort. Whatever makes me feel good, whatever makes me comfortable, that's what I pursue. And I think that far too many of us pursue and bow the need to control. We simply want to control things. We want to control people. We want to control outcomes. We want to control circumstances. And as long as we can manipulate and control everything that's around us, then we're just all right. We're doing quite well. In fact, COVID, if it's taught us anything, is that we really are out of control. We don't have good control on, on nearly anything. I mean, the last 18 months to two years, how many of you have ever felt or thought or said, I'm, this is out of control. I have no control over what I do or what I don't do or what I put on or what I don't put on or what I have to go or don't go. I mean, I have no control. This is driving me bonkers, right? And I get it. I'm the same way. But could that be? That's one of the prominent, prevalent idols in the American culture. Maybe God, by his spirit, is bringing some idols to your mind. An idol is anything. It's, it's everything to which you give too much value, too much worth, too much time, too much attention, too much allegiance. It was Alistair Begg who said that idolatry is not just worshiping a false god, it's worshiping the right god in a false way. I think in the American culture, we are guilty of idolatry because we approach the God of the Bible in a fashion in which we have crafted and designed him. Let me give you a few examples. I think in the American culture, we treat God as a celestial ATM. That as long as we punch in the right code, as long as we push the right buttons, he's obligated to make it rain down Benjamins. He's obligated to give us our pleasure. He's obligated to give us what we want. Because when you go to an ATM machine, all you have to do is push the right numbers, put in the right code, press the right buttons. And if you press the right buttons, then you get what you're asking for. And if you don't get what you're asking for, it's only because there's some defect or you didn't put in the right code, right? You go to an ATM machine and you expect to get out what you put in. And so we do the same thing with God. We think of him as a celestial ATM. That as long as I quote unquote do the right thing, as long as I push the right buttons, as long as I do more good than bad, it'll somehow tip the scales in my favor. And, and God will be obligated to give me what I want. Oh, friends, sometimes we treat God as a celestial ATM. I think that sometimes we treat God as the divine Saint Nick. And I'm not talking about Nick, who's the coach of the Alabama football team. I'm talking about 
Santa Claus. We treat God as if he's a divine Saint Nick. He's got a list and he's checking it twice, going to make sure who's naughty or nice. And we act as if that good people get good things from a good God and bad people get bad things from that same God. If you listen closely to us, really what we're describing is that we believe more in karma than Christ. Because the rules of karma say that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And we approach God as if he's a divine Saint Nick. He's somehow obligated, check that list twice, God, check it twice. You got to make sure that I'm a nice one, I'm not naughty. And because I'm nice, you're obligated to give me what I want. Oh, friends, I think that we're guilty of what Alistair Begg says. We worship the right God in the wrong way. We treat him as as a celestial ATM. We treat him as divine Saint Nick. Sometimes we approach God and we simply regard him as an ecclesiastical bellhop. We think the only reason he exists is to do our bidding. The only reason he's around is to carry our baggage. The only thing that we have him for is just so he can lift the heavy luggage so we don't have to lift a finger. And we might, we might give him a tip every once in a while. But really, he's just an ecclesiastical bellhop. He exists to do our bidding. Now, I don't know very many people who would actually say that. Oh, but I know a lot of people who live that way. They live as if God is an ecclesiastical bellhop. And sometimes people live as if God is a sanctified politician. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? A sanctified politician. But sometimes we approach God as if he doesn't want to offend anybody. He's a sanctified politician. He wants to be religiously right. He wants to be uh, culturally accurate. He wants to be sensitive, tolerant, and woke. And so we approach God as if he is a sanctified politician. I know I'm right because we live in an American culture where there's a time we can have a national prayer service. We're on that stage. There is a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim Amman, a Catholic priest, and a Christian preacher. And in America, we describe ourselves as being very tolerant and a religious, spiritual nation. That might be religiously tolerant, but it is divinely repulsive because there is only one God. And we cannot craft him into an image that is not portrayed of him in the Bible. So what do you do? How do you handle the cultural idols in which we live? What do you do with the idols that rear their ugly head in your life from time to time? It is too numerous for me to articulate. It could be anything. It could be something. It could be everything. I mean, just about anything, even a good thing can become a God thing. But when God reminds you that you are valuing something too highly, you're giving someone more worth than they really deserve, how do you handle that? What do you do? How do you deal with the idols that are within you How do you deal with the idols that are surrounding you? I'll give you one illustration. It's a story that's tucked away in Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel 3, we are told of three teenage boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are young men of Israelite descent 
But when the barbaric Babylonians came into the southern kingdom of Judah, they deported many of the best and brightest, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They took them into foreign Babylonian captivity. And there, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he invested greatly into these young men because he saw in them promise and future. So they had a different diet. They had a different education. They were given a different lifestyle because the king highly regarded them. He knew they had an aptitude that could really help the nation of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was an egotistical freak. I mean, he, he was uh, in love with himself. Um, he wanted everybody to love him. And so he ordered for a, an idol to be made. It was a golden image, about 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. It probably was of himself. He issued the decree that everybody had to bow down and worship that idol. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar wanted exclusive worship. He just wanted to be included on everybody's worship list. So you could worship any god you wanted to, so long as you would also bow the knee to this golden image. He got all the band together, the Babylonian bombers, they came together to play. They struck up the band, and everybody kneeled down in worship. Everybody except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar is between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he cannot be defied. On the other hand, he really likes these guys, and he's invested a lot into them. So he comes to the conclusion they must not have heard the music. So he calls them in, says, boys, I'm going to give you a second chance. I will not give you a third chance, but I will give you a second chance, just because I like you that much. When you hear the music... Bow down to this idol. Give it value. Give it worth. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego conferred together. They concluded, and this is what they simply said. King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. The God we serve is able to save us from the fiery furnace. But even if he does not. We want you to know we will not bow down to the golden image you have constructed. Those three teenage boys give us great insight on how do you handle the idols of the culture. I mean, first and foremost, you don't have to defend yourself. A Christian, you don't have to defend yourself. I mean, God will defend you. You don't need to get angry or bombastic. You, you don't need to get frustrated. You don't need to get irritated. Look, you don't need to defend yourselves when it comes to this matter. You don't need to defend yourself when it comes to the idols of the culture. You just stand up for God. You just stand on the truth of his word. You just give him your all, all your attention, all your affection, all your allegiance. You don't need to defend yourself when it comes to how much you love the Lord. You don't have to defend yourself. And whatever you're facing, the God we serve is able to save us from it. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. The God that we serve is able to rescue us. He's able to deliver us. He is suitable in his salvific power. He is the only one who can sufficiently save us. He is able to save you from anything and everything. You don't need another deity. You don't need another God. You don't need to trust anyone else or anything else. You just simply need to trust the Lord because he's able. He is able to save you for whatever you're going through. But even if he doesn't save you from it, 
He will save you through it. You may have to still experience the fiery furnace of difficulty, tragedy, and turmoil. You may have to experience it. He may not save you from it, but he will save you through it. Our God is able to save us from it, but even if he does not, we will not compromise. We will not bow down to the image that's been set up by our culture. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you perceive them as devoted. Nebuchadnezzar perceives them as defiant. So he got angry. He got furious. He ordered for the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. He ordered some of his strongest men to bind up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fully clothed from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet so they'll be more inflammable, so it'll be more painful. And the strongest men were tugging and pulling and punching Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they made their way up to the fiery furnace. They threw them in, and the fire was so intense that it suffocated those strong men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, firmly tied, fell into the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar pulled up a chair so he could watch them burn. Burn, baby, burn is what he said. He wanted them to fry to a crisp. And he looked in and he saw not three but four. He asked his advisors, were there not three men that we bound up and threw in the fire? Yes, certainly, O king. Then why do I see four? They're unbound, unharmed, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar saw Jesus. For Jesus showed up in the midst of the fiery furnace. It was Jesus who put a hedge of protection around them. And then Nebuchadnezzar goes to the entrance of the furnace. He cries out. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Now that's different. Because earlier he asked them, what God do you think will save you out of my hand? What so-called God do you worship? By the time you get to the end of the story, what a powerful testimony, what a witness. It is Nebuchadnezzar who says, you are servants of the Most High God. Come out and come here. They came out, not a hair on their head was singed. Their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. Nebuchadnezzar maybe came to faith, I don't know. Nebuchadnezzar simply said, um, anyone who speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I will cut them to pieces, and I will burn their houses to rubble. Now, once again, I don't know if he was saved. Uh, I know he wasn't sanctified, right? I mean, I don't know if he was saved, but he said, hey, hey, if you speak out against their God, I'm going to kill you. Why? Because no God can save in this way. He may have had some bad theology, but that last line's exactly right. No God can save in this way. What Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saying by their actions is that we would rather die standing for the living one than to live kneeling for the dead idol. Let me say that again. We would rather die standing for the living one than to live kneeling for the dead idol. How do you handle the idols in your life, within you and surrounding you? I want to encourage you to look to the Lord. The bigger you regard God, the smaller your idols become. Look at the text. Exodus chapter 20. 
verses 4 to 6. The Lord says, do not make for yourself an idol out of anything. Heaven above, earth beneath, waters below. Do not bow down. Do not worship. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I don't know how often we think of jealousy as a good trait, but in this case, it is a good trait. Because exclusive love leads to loyal jealousy. Exclusive love that God has for you, it leads to loyal jealousy that he has for you. He's saying, listen, I'm a jealous God. I'm not going to share you with any other deity. I'm a jealous God. I'm not going to share you part-time with any other idol that you may craft or create in your mind, in your heart, in your life. I am so jealous for you because I love you so much that I am not willing to share you with anyone. That's why you give him your all, all attention, all affection, all allegiance. It's a good thing for God to be a jealous God. In fact, I'll go so far as to say you want God to be a jealous God. You want him to be jealous for you. Because he's jealous for you, it describes and portrays his loyal love that he has for you. You desire for God to be jealous for you. As I thought about that, I I came to this conclusion. When it comes to my relationship with Jane Ellen, I'm a jealous husband. I really am. And what do I mean by that? I mean, I'm not going to share her with any of you scallywags. I'm not going to let any of you hold her, kiss her, love her, live with her. And I'll go one step further. If you try to do any of those things, hell has no fury compared to what I'm going to open up and unleash on your tail. All right? Uh, Maybe a preacher not supposed to talk like that, but I'm just being honest with you. I am a jealous husband. I'm a jealous husband because my exclusive love for her leads to loyal jealousy. I'm not going to share her with anybody. In fact, that's what you want from your spouse. You want your spouse to be jealous for you. You want your spouse not to desire to share you with anybody else. I mean, how hurtful is that for you to say, you know what? I don't even know if my spouse loves me. I don't know if he cares for me. He he wouldn't care if I went and lived with somebody else or shacked up with somebody else or somebody else was hugging on me and kissing on me. No, you want a spouse who has jealous love for you. And you're God. Your God says, I love you so much, I'm not going to share you with anything. I'm not going to share you with any so-called God of your culture, and I'm not going to share you with any idol that you create in your life. And anything and everything has the potential of being an idol that you give too much worth to, too much value to. God says, I'm not willing to share you with anybody or anything. You want proof of this? All I have to do is go from Mount Sinai to Mount Calvary. And when you and I go to Mount Calvary, it is is obvious. The exclusive love that God has for you. the, the, The loyal jealousy that he has for you. Because it's there at Calvary where Jesus the God man hung to make you holy. It is there where he died so that you might live 
It is there that the innocent one was declared guilty so that we who are guilty may be declared innocent in God's sight. It is there on the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. It is there on Mount Calvary that God spared not his own son so that you may know God both now and forevermore. He spared not his own son because he's so jealous for you. He spared not his own son. God offered up Jesus as the suitable substitute for your sin and for my sin. And Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus died so that we may know God. Jesus died so that we would know his loyal love and his exclusive jealousy that he has for us. That's how much God loves you. That's how jealousy is for you. God loves you that much. And I tell you, I am grateful for a jealous God because his actions prove the level of his jealousy for me and for you. He's not going to share us with anybody. I have a friend who used to be an FBI agent. I say used to because I think he used to. Maybe he still is. I don't know. But he worked For the government and specifically he worked a lot with when it comes to counterfeit money. And he would tell me, I can spot a counterfeit dollar bill of any currency, of of any increment in our currency a mile away. And I said, how can you do that? Did they teach you to see all of the different counterfeits? And he said, no, that's impossible. I mean, there's so many different nuances. There's so many different ways they can tinker with the money. There's an infinite number of counterfeits. No, all they did is they made sure that we studied the original. And if we knew what the original looked like, we know what's counterfeit. And I sat there and I said, you're not a preacher, but that's a sermon. Because you're exactly right. Because if I look on the original one, if I behold the Lord, if I look upon him, if I look to the authentic one, then everything else becomes counterfeit. And it becomes obvious because the larger I make the Lord, the smaller I make my idols. The larger I make the Lord, the smaller I make my idols. The larger you make the Lord, the smaller you make idols. When you look upon the original one, everything else is counterfeit and it's obvious to you. The longer you gaze and study and look and worship and love the God of the Bible, anything that's counterfeit becomes obvious to you. And you know the counterfeit is worthless. So my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is counterfeit. Because Jesus is the rock. He's the original. He's the authentic one. How do you smash the idols of your life? Look to the Lord. Look to this Lord who is jealous for you. Look to this Lord who loves you. And the larger the Lord becomes in your life, the smaller your idols become. And I wonder this morning, do any of you need to smash some idols? The altar is going to be open. I don't have a physical hammer here, but if I did, I would give it to you and say, smash away, baby, smash away. Smash the idols that are in your life. They're cheap. 
They're imitations. It's something that you've given far too value, far too much worth. There's only one original. It's the Lord. So do not make for yourself an idol out of anything. Because I, the Lord your God, I'm jealous for you. I'm not going to share you with anybody. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. And Father, we pray that if there's someone here listening to my voice who does not know you exclusively, help today to be the day of faith and salvation. Lord, if there's somebody here who is a believer, but let's just be honest, there are far too many idols that rear their ugly heads in our life. Today, help them to be smashed. Lord, the altar's open for us to come, to pray to you, ask for help. Maybe you're drawing somebody to full-time Christian ministry. Maybe you're drawing somebody to change their membership here to this church. Whatever you're asking us to do, Lord, let us do it because you are the God that we love and we obey. In Jesus' name, amen.